Amen. Let's begin with a question. Why is everyone so angry? You're chuckling. Why? Because it does seem that in this moment that we find ourselves in, this secular moment, that people are angry. What is anger? Let me give you a definition. If you want to write this down, you can do it on the back of your happening sheet, which you got on the way in, or pull up a note in your phone and think about some of these things with me. But here's a definition of anger. It is a spontaneous feeling that comes over our mind and body. And here's the key. When our will is thwarted. Okay, let me read it again. A spontaneous feeling that comes over our mind and body when our will is thwarted. This will be class participation today. Does that sound familiar to anyone? No. He's no. <laughs> like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. All right. If you're watching online, we all experience that, right? The sudden, spontaneous feeling that honestly takes over your whole body. You feel it warm you from your head to your toes to your fingers. And we have that moment. And yet, if you are a follower of Jesus, which I assume most of you are in this room, but if you're not, welcome. You're, we are so glad you're here. But here's what Jesus, here's what the Lord, here's what the Bible has to say about anger in our relationships. Colossians chapter 3 verse 8 says this, but now you must put them all away, away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them away. James chapter 1 verse 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to what? Anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Guilty. Guilty. Before any gospel good news word comes to you, you have to receive the diagnosis of who you really are. Unless we get honest about who we are and where we're at, we won't be delivered from that place. True? Another unintended consequence of the autonomous self-worldview that we talked about last week is that when I do not get my way or you disagree with my way, it makes me angry. And thus the answer to the question, why is everybody so angry, is that is why we are all so angry. You can't drive up I-4, 275. Dale Mabry, you give it enough stoplights or enough traffic jams, and you'll see it come out. Don't you switch lanes in front of me, because we're all going somewhere real fast. That three seconds is mine. The New York Times published an article earlier this year about this idea, totally secular source, and here's just a short Excerpt, just a couple sentences. As with so many things in the pandemic, it was clear that reality had begun to shift. I would argue long before the pandemic, but this just highlighted it, right? 
And what once would have been horrifying, this outpouring of rage against a backdrop of constant low-grade mistrust, had become the new normal. And as the storekeeper we interviewed with the tantrumy customer told me, you're looking at someone and thinking, I don't think this is about the cheese. <laughs> right? Like, can cheese make you that angry? Lots of anger, even over cheese. Let's be real, though. All anger is not wrong, right? Let's concede that not all anger is wrong. Anger is an emotion. God gave us emotions and anger at injustice is helpful. Necessary. Anger at abuse is right. Anger at sin, not the sinner, can be good. However, let's keep keeping it real, right? Most of our use of anger is not that kind of anger. It is the selfish kind of anger, right? So we're just building on what last week started. So because we are sinners and selfish people in need of rescue, we have to take an honest look at what are the things that make us angry? Why am I angry? And not surprisingly, Jesus has a really great conversation with somebody about anger. So I just want to briefly look at it and and unpack a little bit of what Jesus is saying. So Matthew chapter 5, if you have a Bible, we're going to start in verse 21. I'm just going to look at the first two verses right now, and then we'll come to to a few more in just a second. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And so he has walked through a lot of incredible teaching already, the Beatitudes, and then into the fact that we are the salt of the earth, we are the city set on a hill, that he is working out his plan, his rescue plan, his rescue mission through his people, through his church, through his kids. And Peter says he's building this spiritual house, which you and I are. So It's not the building, it's not the stuff, it's not anything, it's you and me, and it's why it's so important for us to be together. And so all of those things are true, and then Jesus comes and he begins this section of uh, what really would be a very typical style of teaching for a rabbi of the time when he would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and it's a way of teaching, it's a way of saying, you've heard this teaching in the Old Testament, let me explain that to you for today. Let me, let me help you work that. It was, it was preaching. It was taking the word and it was expounding that for people. And so Jesus is doing that here. And he's talking about our relationships. And so here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, right? Murder is on the Ten Commandments, right? So, big deal. Every single person sitting on that mountainside listening to Jesus would have understood immediately what he was talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 5, right? We go to Exodus. We would know what those Ten Commandments are. They would know that the Shema comes right after that. And they are not only supposed to believe that, but to live it and teach it to their kids. Right? Like, everybody would have had that. Would have been no problem. 
But what Jesus is about to say is where the light bulbs would be like, wow. So here's, here's what he says. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Got it. No problem. But I say to you, now here this is what's interesting as well. Jesus is taking scripture and he's adding to it. Right? He didn't say, let me tell you what that means. What is he claiming in this moment? He's claiming to be who? God. This is my word, and I'm going to flesh this out for you because I am God. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is, what's the word? Angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, some of your translations are going to say, instead of insults, they're going to say raka, which is basically an, 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 an uh, I was going to say Amharic, but that is Ethiopian, <laughs> um, Aramaic. Let me get that right. Was basically just an Aramaic slang cuss word, right? So Jesus is just using what the typical language of the day. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Again, to us, they're like council. Like what? Sanhedrin, very important in that day. That this was big enough to rise to the most authoritative religious court that they had. And so Jesus is saying this is a big deal. And whoever says you fool, if you didn't, if you weren't swayed by going before the Sanhedrin council for your anger, he says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you think that Jesus felt like this was important? Yes or no? I don't think you talk about going to court or to hell unless it's important. And so here we are. There's a few Greek New Testament words for anger. Three of them. One is thumos, and it's just that sudden outburst, right? It's what I talked about at the very beginning with my definition. It's just that sudden outburst, that sudden feeling, and then it kind of, you express it maybe inappropriately, or maybe you uh, use mindfulness or whatever it is to deal with that, and then you move on, right? So thumos, that sudden, I'm angry. I got cut off in traffic, but by the time you get where you're going, you forgot that you were cut off in traffic, that kind of thing. There's a second one, uh, perorgasmos, which is a cluster of sins. This would be the worst of what you're thinking. So it becomes a pattern. It becomes something you keep doing. It becomes who you are. It becomes seated in your person, right? This would be like um, you commit multiple murders, right? Like you're a serial killer, like that. <laughs> and then there's a third one, which is perhaps the worst because it's the one that will kill you. And it's the word orge, and it means that brewing, lingering, stuck there kind of anger that remains, right? The, the, the word here, whoever is angry at their brother, is a present participle. So it's whoever is remaining angry with their brother. Like, I can't get over it. In our culture, we would call it a grudge. And just lingers there that's the kind that jesus is talking about here whoever is angry with their brother or sister and so 
that's where we're at. And I want to say that Jesus is doing something more helpful here than just looking at you and I going, hey, you need to stop being so angry. Because how many of you know it's not that easy to stop being so angry, particularly if there was legitimate reason for the anger, right? What is happening here? I mean, let, let's be real. It almost seems like maybe Jesus is angry, right? He talked about going to court. He talked about putting people in hell. What's a, maybe Jesus needs his own medicine. I don't think that's true. Because what Jesus is offering here isn't platitudes. It's not like, hey, do these four things and you'll stop being angry. Let's go. Let's celebrate. Woo! Like, no, some of us, some of you, some of me, like there's the undertow of anger that keeps pulling us where we don't want to go. And it's not always the, ah, like maybe it is sometimes. But you don't have to be punching holes in walls to be angry at the world. You can just be a cynic long enough to where everything is a problem and everybody's a problem and you're angry at everything. It's really important because what's important here is your soul. That it's building off of this idea that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. Which means there isn't room for things like anger. That's why back in Colossians and James it says we need to put those things away. How do I put those things away? This would have been really important because what Jesus is talking about is not like eternal hell. (laughs) It's important for us to know the context of what's happening here. As soon as Jesus would have said the hell of fire, everybody on that hillside would have known exactly what he was talking about. There was a valley outside of Jerusalem where they would throw their trash and then they would light it on fire. And so it was always burning. There was this valley that was always on fire. It always smelled. It was always gross. It was always hot. It was always literally on fire. And on top of that, in certain time periods of Israel's history, in that valley, child sacrifice would take place. So nobody wanted to be in that place, right? You might toss your garbage over the city wall into this place, but you were not going to stay in that place. And so when Jesus says that, he uses the word Gehenna, and Gehenna was talking about that place. And so that it was an illustration. They would have immediately known that when I choose anger and it begins to fester and it takes root in my life and I can't get past my anger, I am living in hell at that moment. Because there is zero chance that the joy of the Lord can be your strength. There is zero chance that you and I can love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our soul, and then love our neighbor as ourself if we're consumed by the fires of hell, which Jesus seems to think is anger burning inside of you. And I've lived that. And it is. Exactly as Jesus tells us. 
And so in this passage, Jesus is more like a doctor diagnosing your soul than he is a dictator telling you what to do and not to do, because this matters to you and I. Every day. Because it's not just murder, right? Jesus is saying, it's not just murder. It's how you love your neighbor. And so I, I want to just walk through this cycle and put it up on the screen if you want to write it down. It, it's super helpful to think through the stages of anger that you go through, that I go through, and what the strategies to break those things are, which we'll talk about in a minute. But this, this language is not original to me. It's out there. You can Google it. Other people have talked about it. But I think it's very helpful. And so let's just walk through them. Um, real quick, because I think they're really helpful. Number one, we get angry. Shocker. Wow, brilliant. Sometimes, though, we can stop anger right there. Because unchecked, anger will go to the next stage. But you've heard the phrase, knowledge is power, right? Jesus said that what is in the light is where you find freedom, right? So you've heard preachers talk about dragging things into the light. This is where we can drag it into the light. You just, boom, that spontaneous feeling of anger. Drag it into the light. Drag it into the light. What happens when we don't drag our anger into the light? goes to step two. Our ego gets wounded. Our ego gets wounded, and this is where most of us get in trouble, myself included. We get angry, and then it damages our ego, because who do we care about the most? Ourself, right? And once our ego is wounded, if we don't drag that into the light, it goes to the third step. We start to play the self-righteous victim. I can't believe you would do that to me. I mean, who do you think you are? Right? And we're chuckling, but at the same time, it's like, though that is where those feelings, you can feel it grip your heart. You can feel it grip your being. You can feel it reach into your soul. And that's why Jesus says that this is the fire of hell. Burning in you. Because what happens after you decide, I'm the victim here. <laughs> it happens so fast. But once you decide you're the victim, it then, then the, the choice where things go really bad is that you give your heart next step over to contempt. And contempt then begins to fester. That's where we start to believe that we're better. Not just that I'm a victim, but I'm better than you. Like, I can't believe you would do that. And then we start to make judgment calls on their person. We start to determine that they're bad people and that we're good people. When in reality, Jesus says, there's how many good people? None. The Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. But we start to do this. We start to look down on people. We start to make judgment calls about people. And what's scary is at that point, the next two steps is where things go very bad. 
Because the first one is simply verbal violence, right? We just begin to use our words to tear people down. But what did we read way back at the beginning? We ought to be slow to speak, slow to anger, right? We should get rid of all obscene talk from our mouth. So I can't do that now because the fire of hell is burning in my soul. That I can't think about anything but me. Verbal violence take place. Then I begin, next step, to wreak hell on earth. Because that's what Jesus said was going to happen, right? Now I'm going to drag you into hell with me. If I'm going to be miserable, you're going to be miserable. Well, how does it get to that other stage of anger where, our, where things get real bad, where they get physical? Where does that third one come in? Well, the next, the next one after you begin to wreak hell on earth is that you lose control. And then it becomes the final one, domestic violence, abuse, and we could go on and on and on. See, people don't just wake up one day and kill somebody, right? Like there's a cycle that never got broken. We could go to Genesis chapter 4 and talk about the first murder recorded in the Bible, where Cain and Abel are born. And then the Bible says after some time, which is Bible speak for it, they grew up. And so they're doing their thing. And it came time to worship because how many of you know all of life is worship? Yeah. And so in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel both bring an offering to God because from the very beginning, everything that we do, even our work is sacred. And so they bring their offerings to God and God accepts Abel's and he rejects Cain's because for whatever reason, Cain's was insufficient or he didn't bring it with the right heart. And so in that moment, the Bible says that Cain got angry. And so to fast forward a little bit, Jesus, he goes and he kills his brother because he's angry because he went through these cycles where he was, I can't believe God would not accept my sacrifice. Can you believe that? And then my stupid brother. And it just went. So even one of God's earliest creations murders another one of his creations. And what does God do when he comes to Cain? He comes to Cain and he says, why are you so angry? Can you imagine what that would have felt like knowing you had just killed your brother? Like that moment would have been the moment that it shook him out of the cycle. But it was too late. Right? It was too late. There's a point in our, you know, the gospel tells us that our vertical relationship to God is forever settled. There is nothing you can do, even murder or anything else. That will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. But the gospel doesn't just secure you forever. It sheds light on your now. Your horizontal relationships with other people. And there are natural consequences. There is a moment of no return in your relationships. Where trust is lost. Or it's broken. Or the relationship is so damaged that it can't be repaired. There, there is ways where that becomes, right? Why is the divorce rate just as high in the church as, it, as in the secular world? Because there's a point where there's no return in a relationship. Not with God, but with other people, humans who are also sinners. And so this is so critical. So what's the takeaway from the Cain and Abel story? 
that your relationship to God is connected to your relationship with people. That if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, if you don't put the work in, if you don't do the spiritual disciplines, you will not love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And why is that critical? Because then you don't stand a chance to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't. You just can't. It's not possible. And so it's connected. And so now Jesus, back to his teaching, is going to bring it all back into worship. It's going to bring it all back into the temple for his last illustration here. And it's so important because it's connecting, right? Cain and Abel talking about worship and sacrifice and loving the Lord their God with all their heart and how broken down in Cain's anger, that fellowship was broken. Now he's going to talk about it here in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 23. Look at, look at how the sequence plays out. So Jesus just says, even if you're angry, like you're liable to judgment. You ought to go to the Sanhedrin council. You're suffering in the fire of hell. And then he takes it one step farther to something so practical to them. Because they would have been in Jerusalem in the first place to go to the temple. And to offer sacrifices. And to worship the Lord. So here it is. So, Jesus says, all that's true. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar. Notice he doesn't say, if you're gonna. He says, so when. Like this, just everybody was doing this. When you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Listen to this. Leave your gift there at the altar. Now listen, we read, read your gift. You know what they read? Leave your goat at the altar. Like meh, like goat, like alive, like or worse. Won't talk about that. Gruesome. Aren't you glad you live today? It make you bring a goat, slaughter it right here. Or your dove or whatever it was that you were offering. Like, leave it right there on the altar. Sorry, priest. Pretty angry at somebody right now. Like, how radical is that? Leave your gift at the altar. Let's make it even more practical. Did everybody that was in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices live in Jerusalem? What if you lived 30 30 miles outside of Jerusalem and you didn't have a Tesla? You didn't have an SUV. At best, you had a donkey. But most likely, you walked. And Jesus is saying to you, it's more important for you to leave your goat, dead or alive, at the altar and run back home and find that person and repair that relationship than it is for you to stay right here. Because look, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. It's like, isn't it, Jesus saying, isn't it better for me to 
check my anger in the first stage or two than to let it fester where I make a decision that there's no point. There's no point of return from. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. There's consequences for our actions. So a question comes back. How do we break the cycle? Worship. Right? Worship. Like all of these stories are told in scenarios of worship. Because what is the reality? That because we're so selfish, anger has the tendency to take over our soul. And so Jesus says to break that cycle requires you to reconcile with people. Undoubtedly, every one of us, even if it hasn't festered into a massive outburst, has somebody that we could reconcile with. Hey, I'm sorry. Hey, that doesn't matter as much as I think it matters. If something isn't right, Jesus says... Go. Go. It's that simple. Because you know what? There's that point where you'll be handed over to the judge, to the guard, to the prison, and you will not get out until you've paid for that sin. But isn't it beautiful that Jesus is saying, if you're at odds with something, go to them and try to make peace. Not that you'll see eye to eye on everything or that you'll suddenly have trust for that person again, but that Peace is the goal. And so, how do we break the cycle? I want to give you something from a writer in the 1600s. Because, and if you were at Leadership Academy this week, this will sound familiar to you. Because at the end of the day, how do I break that cycle? It goes back to what we talked about last week goes back to the Shema, our confession of faith. It goes to what Jesus said are the two greatest commandments. The way you win that war is what Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, which the pattern of this world says, I will fight for what is mine because I am the most important piece. The autonomous self. The Bible says, don't conform to that pattern. It says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, what does that look like? I want to put this up on the screen for you. A guy named Brother Lawrence. Great little book. It's like a pamphlet called Practicing the Presence of God. You should buy it and read it as fast as possible. But even in the 1600s, he was saying, we've moved God out. We don't have time for God. And so here's what he says. I know that for the right practice of it, being in God's presence, the heart, okay, connect the dots, love the Lord your God with all your, okay, the heart must be empty of all other things. Because God will possess the heart alone. There is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful human flourishing, more sweet and delightful than that of continual conversation with God. Were I a preacher, 
I should, above all things, preach the practice of the presence of God. Set heartily about this work. And if you do it as you ought, right? I've been saying to you for weeks, no shortcuts. There's <laughs> no shortcuts to the spiritual practices. If you do it as you ought, be assured that you will soon find the effects of it. What's he saying? To practice the presence of God. What did the Shema say? When you rise, when you lay down, when you walk around on the doorposts of your house, what's it saying? The continual presence of God that no matter where I go or what I do, the Lord is there. What is the doctrine of his omnipresence? That we confess that God, you are everywhere. And therefore, anywhere that I go, I can be with who? God. How do you break the cycle? Practice the presence of God. We've complicated it. We've complicated it to in the morning, I'm going to spend 10 minutes with the Lord and all my problems are going to be solved. No, you should get up and spend 10 minutes with the Lord because just like the practice of tithing, those principles are important. It's a reason for that. It's not because God needs your money. It's because you need God to have your money, right? Like that's why we do that. It's not for him. It's for us because we like to control things. And anger is a symptom of control. And so practice the presence of God. Do not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The heart has to be empty of all other things because God will possess the heart alone. Amen. I'm going to have the band come up and I, just, I, want you to, I want you to sit with that for a minute. That here we are at the altar per se, gathered as God's people. And though we don't bring goats, we do bring our baggage, hence the graphic. Right? I brought baggage in here today. I'm selfish. And it makes me angry sometimes. And so if you're wondering, as they start to play, that was, he's like, yeah. <laughs> tell them. Tell them. But as they start to play, like, that's what I'll be praying about. That's what I'll be praying about. And what I want to invite you to do is to take three minutes of your time and deal with it. If you need to send a text, you should get your phone out and send a text. If you need to schedule some time with somebody, you should do that. If you need to confess to the Lord, like, hey, I've ignored you for a week, two weeks, three weeks, three months, three years, five years, ten years. Go ahead and do that. We're not doing this so that you can listen to my great speeches. That is not the point. The point is for you to transform your mind. 
point is for you to be in communion with the Lord, to practice the presence of God at every moment of every day, because everything is connected to worship. I'm either worshiping myself or I'm worshiping the Lord. No doubt, you and I, we screwed that up this week. We worshiped ourselves a little bit. And so how about this moment together as the church, we just confess our sins. Repent. Repent's not a scary word. It just means to turn around and go the other way. Let's break the cycle right now. And so why don't you stand with me? If you want to make it symbolic, you can come up and kneel on the prayer pads here and pray. I invite you to begin right now to practice the presence of God. If you're watching online or watching this later, you can just do that right there in the comfort of your own home. Just kneel down. Text somebody, call somebody, whatever it is that you need to do. Jesus says, leave your offering at the altar and go. He like if they were sitting on that mountainside, I, I envision people got up and they started to walk away, not because they didn't like what Jesus said, but because they needed to make some things right. And they had to catch the rest of the Sermon on the Mount on YouTube later. Listen, we don't have, we like James said that life is a vapor. You don't have time in this life to just mess around. Life is short, very short. So Jesus is inviting you to a different way of life. So let's just take three minutes. So Kevin, it says 11.07. At 11.10, we can sing. Let's just do the work of practicing the presence of God. Let's set heartily about that work. And I believe it will change your life. So let's take just a couple minutes to do that. And then we will...